Well, good morning, everybody. How is everybody today? Excellent, excellent. Well, it's so good to be with you. It's such a joy and a privilege for us to get to gather around God's Word, to set aside this particular time in the course of week, to be able to study, to think, to dream about God's purpose for our lives together. And we're in the midst of this series that we launched last week called Unexpected Togetherness. And that phrase, unexpected togetherness, is not just a title of a series for us. It's not just a catchphrase. We believe that one of the things that we cherish the most is the way that the gospel brings us together. And that the gospel does that, that God does this in his spirit in surprising ways, that there is a heart of belonging at the very core of what God asks us to do together. And that this surprising togetherness is woven in the fabric of even nature. We talked last week about how that there are surprising moments in nature where things come together that you don't expect. And it's such a beautiful thing when that happens. And even in the midst of all the chaos and the turmoil of our lives as things are coming apart, it is such a beautiful thing when God's people dwell together in unity. We know the origins of that come from the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus, and that we go back to the early history of the church, that there was a poignant moment that after Pentecost where God had really unified his people. And so last week we looked at Acts chapter 2 and kind of the, the birth of the church and the way that God brought the community together. And so we labeled that unexpected togetherness. And we talked about how in Acts chapter 2 they were doing a variety of things together that they were eating together, that they were learning together, that they were sharing together, and that they were praying together. And that these activities, these practices, are what really defined them and described them as a community. And so we try to come up with a catchier way of saying that. Gather, learn, serve, and care. Always fill the empty chair. Why don't you say that with me? Gather, learn, serve, and care. Always fill the empty chair. That this is our dream, that we would be a community of communities and that we would have communities that are engaged in those types of activities. So our hope is for every person who's a part of the Peachtree family, that you wouldn't just come to church or watch online, but that you would also be engaged in a community where you get to know and be known and love and be loved and serve and be served, that you get to celebrate and be celebrated, that this is our hope and our dream for you. And one of the things that's apparent to me is, is that Yes, Acts chapter 2 is a special moment, and that yes, it's clear that as the early church launches, that that's not an idealized period of time, that there are lots of struggles. But that, that this Acts 2 community didn't develop overnight. It didn't like spontaneously combust. That actually Jesus cultivated through his life in his ministry, he planted all kinds of different seeds for that community to come about. And so we started in Acts chapter 2, and we're actually now going to rewind towards the beginning of the Gospel of Luke, because Luke wrote both Luke and Acts. It's the same author in two different volumes or two different scrolls. And now as we go back to the beginning, we're going to see how Jesus was kicking down the barriers to community in order to get 
to Acts chapter 2. And so we're going to put that up on the screen here and talk about overcoming rejection, overcoming wounds, overcoming distrust, overcoming isolation, overcoming busyness, overcoming confusion and selfishness and shallowness and ulterior motives and monotony. That these are the different barriers that Jesus breaks through in order for us to be able to experience community, not just in the early church, but in our moment in time today. And so this is kind of our roadmap for the fall. If that sounds interesting to you, hopefully you'll come back. If it's not interesting to you, we'll see you around the holidays and, uh, and maybe you'll check in then. Actually, I do wanna, I wanna say this. Uh, if, if you weren't here last week, I really want you to go back and to listen to last week's message because it's better than this week's message. No, um, because, because it was not just a sermon, it was us talking about what does it mean for us to do life together um, in the next 18 months? What's a really a priority for us? Maybe you slept through last week's sermon, you were here, and maybe you need to refresh yourself, but I encourage you to go back and to do that. Today, we're going to talk about overcoming rejection, and that we're overcoming rejection with the sanctuary of God. And so as we dive into that, I want you to imagine at first that there is a late elementary school boy who wants nothing more than to play basketball, and that there's a blacktop outdoor basketball court near the park that's close to their house, that there are some older kids there, and they've got two different captains, and they're picking teams, and he's watching one by one as all the people around him get picked, and they get to the number 10 where the court is full, and He's the only one that doesn't get to play. And all he gets to do is to watch from the sideline that he wasn't chosen. Or maybe you could picture a junior high girl who decides to put herself out there because she wants to get involved in student leadership. And in order to get involved in student leadership, there's an election, which is a glorified popularity contest. And so she puts up the posters and she gives the speech and she asks her friends to vote for her. And then when the day of the election comes and they tally all the votes, she notices a group of them congregated by kind of a bulletin board in the school, and there's a sign there that shows those who made it. She hears the squeals of delight of those who were elected, and she notices her name is not on the list. She wasn't chosen. Or maybe you might relate more to a father who has lost his job. He never imagined that he would be having to retool his life in his mid-50s. And he applies to job after job, but there's this one particular interview, there's this one particular company that he would love to work for, and he feels like he crushed the interview. And he opens up his email, and he double-clicks on the email from the guy he'd interviewed with, and it apologizes the position's already been filled with somebody else. Or maybe there's a single mom here in the room that's getting ready to go to bed at night, and she opens up her social media, checks her phone before she goes to sleep, and she's noticing picture after picture after picture of who she thought were her best friends, and that they had all gone out to dinner without her, hadn't invited her, hadn't included her, she wasn't chosen. I'll bet all of you know, in some form or fashion, the sting of rejection. I remember for the first time knowingly experiencing and remembering that. It was in junior high, it was in eighth grade, there was a junior high dance that took place in the drama room 
which is kind of ironic. There was drama training by day, and then there was drama training at night with the dance. And it was a junior high dance, so there's boys on this part of the room, and there's girls on this part of the room, and there's this no man's land in the middle that nobody is willing to cross the threshold, except for your pastor. <laughs> because there was this one girl. She was a vision. She was a goddess. She wore guest jeans and a Coca-Cola rugby shirt. Ario Speedwagon came on and I made my way across the dance floor, that isolating green mile of a walk. I go over and I ask her to dance. And it wasn't so much that she said no, as much as it was that she made a sound that was kind of like you. And she turned and she walked away. There was a girl from our youth group who was close by and, and maybe one of the single greatest acts of compassion that I had experienced at that moment in my life. She took my hand and she walked me out to the dance floor and we danced naturally like this for three and a half minutes. But even as we danced and even with that act of compassion, there was a little part of my heart that was just kind of broken up into little pieces. And I pray for God's curse upon that girl in those guest jeans. And, and if you're watching online right now, shame on you. All of us know what rejection feels like. And rejection is the backdrop to the story that we're about to read today. That rejection is a part of the fabric of the story. And we don't notice it that way. This is a guy by the name of Ray Vanderlaan. And he has helped to bring to light some of the obscure, dusty research in order for us to understand this story. That Ray Vanderlaan has popularized uh, a lot of things by taking lots of tour groups over to Israel. And one of the things that he has helped us to notice is that you can actually piece together, and I don't want to get too far into the weeds on this. We actually know the ages of the disciples within rough terms because we know the education system of the way that the rabbinical tradition was back then. We know kind of from interesting records the taxes that were paid and not paid. So we kind of have this idea of the different ages of the disciples. And what we know is that when Jesus walks up to invite these disciples to follow him, that they should have been in school that they weren't in school because they had gotten passed over, that they didn't make the grade, that they, they didn't make it, they didn't have what it takes. And as a result of that, they're working in fishing when ideally they would have longed for their entire lives for a rabbi to look at them and to say, you know what, you can do what it takes and I want you to come, I want you to follow me. And so we have this false notion of, of kind of the call of the disciples, that it's like Jesus is kind of randomly walking along the Sea of Galilee. He's like, yeah, I'll take you, you, and you follow me. It's almost as like if Jesus is doing the Jedi mind trick or something along those lines, that Jesus is kind of Obi-Wan Kenobi, and he walks around, and, he, and it's like a robotic, yes, Lord, we will follow you. That's not what it was like. Rejection, the door closed in their face. And then finally a rabbi comes when they would have thought it was too late for them. And he would have said, no, it's not too late for you. you you're going to follow me. 
And so one day, as Jesus was standing by the lake of Gennesaret, the people were crowding around him. This is also the Sea of Galilee. And listening to the word of God. And he saw at the water's edge two boats left there by the fishermen who were washing their nets. He got into one of the boats, the one belonging to Simon, and asked him to put out a little from shore. And then he sat down and taught the people from the boat. In other words, there were enough people there that Jesus was backing up a little bit into the boat to create kind of a natural amphitheater so people could hear him more effectively. And when Jesus had finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out into the deep water and let down the nets for a catch. Simon answered, master, we've been working hard all night, haven't caught anything. Your sermon was really long. And because you say so, I will let down the nets. And when they had done so, they caught such a large number of fish that their nets began to break. And so they signaled their partners and the other boats to come and to help them. And they came and they filled both boats so that they were so full that they began to sink. And when Simon Peter saw this, he fell at Jesus' knees and said, Go away from me, Lord, I am a sinful man. For he and all his companions were astonished at the catch of fish that they had taken. And so were James and John, the sons of Zebedee, Simon's partners. And then Jesus said to Simon, Don't be afraid. From now on, you will fish for people. And so they pulled their boats up to shore and left what? What did they leave? Everything and followed him. The first thing, the first thing that Jesus does to launch his ministry is to form a community. And do not miss that fact. That before he preaches the Sermon on the Mount, before he calms the sea, before he walks on water, before he feeds the multitude, before he confronts the religious leaders of his day and age, before he goes to Jerusalem in order to go to the cross for your sins and mine, Jesus forms a community. And we might think that communities are spontaneous, that communities are natural, that communities just happen, but that is not how it works. Every single community, every single relationship has as the seed of its origin, one person looking at another and saying, I choose you. And it's from that place, that bold, audacious statement, that rejection can become acceptance. So how do you form a community where you can create that level of authentic belonging? I think Jesus gives us some clues in the way that he calls his first community together. I think we can learn some stuff from that. So let's say that the first thing we can learn about forming a community is that the kind of community that Jesus calls forth is one that has no egos. And after the first service, one person said, you totally lost me after the first point. No egos. Let me explain what I mean by this. Stanford Research Project that was fantastic was called the Marshmallow Challenge. And in this, they called together different communities of people. And what they would do with this challenge is that with these little groups of four, they would give them these resources up on the screen, marshmallow string, tape, but mostly the pieces of spaghetti. They would give them a certain amount of time and they would have to build a tower with only the skills that they have and the equipment that they received together. The marshmallow had to be on top and uh, that they were going to be judged, particularly on the height of the tower. 
and they did all kinds of different communities. They did all kinds of different professions. And they started with kindergartners and they went through executive MBA type people. And if I were to come to you and to say, hey, I'm going to give you some money and you can put it down as a bet on the kindergartners or the MBAs, who you're going to put money on? You're going to put them on the MBAs, right? That's what I would do. And that would be the moment that you lost all of your money because the kindergartners were better at this task than the MBAs. I mean, when the MBAs, they got together, it was kind of impressive. I mean, when the MBAs got together, uh, they would have a strategy session. They had a blue sky brainstorming moment. They would talk about who was going to do what and who was better equipped to do what. And they would talk about the different ways that they were going to do this project. And as they would do that together, they would come up a plan. They would execute that plan. Everybody would stay in their lane. Everybody would have their role. And then they would end it. And on average, the tower of the MBA group was 10 inches tall. Not the kindergartners. Man, they just started grabbing stuff and they're putting stuff together and they're shoving it together and like, that, that's ugly, that doesn't work. And they tear it down and they sort of kind of like trial and error over and over again until they could do it. But what they did do is they got really close to one another. They were very focused on their task. And so the kindergartner's average tower was 26 inches tall. They crushed the MBA guys. And in doing this, one of the things that they discovered is you got to ask yourself, okay, this group, they have more skill, they have more expertise, they have more experience, they have more education. How is it that this group didn't do as well as the little kids? Well, as they watched the tapes and the videos of how they did this task, they noticed that the kindergartners did something that the MBAs didn't and vice versa that the kindergartners were wholeheartedly dedicated to the goal. The MBAs were constantly obsessed with what they referred to as status management. That the entire time that they're in community, it's always this one-upmanship, who's doing what, how is what I'm doing be evaluated by you, what do I do in relationship with you. It was all of these complicated relationships and the way that it worked was that it didn't work because people were focused on their own egos, their own status. Did you notice that when Jesus calls the disciples, he didn't go to the rabbinical equivalent of the executive MBA programs in his day and age? That he went to the Sea of Galilee. And you gotta ask yourself why. I mean, clearly education's not a bad thing. Clearly wisdom's not a bad thing. Experience is not a bad thing. But Jesus was just not willing to import something into this young community that maybe would have been toxic, that apparently Jesus would rather have uneducated and willing over qualified and entitled. And so Simon answers Jesus when he says, let's go out to the deeper waters. He says, Master, we've been working here all night. And remember, Peter's the fisherman. Simon's the fisherman. Here's the expert in this task. And he could have just blown Jesus off, but he didn't. We've been working all night, haven't caught anything. But because you say so, I will let down the nets. If you have your own Bible, circle that phrase, because you say so. 
because there's a certain humility and a certain, can a brother get my water up here? Thank you, my friend. A certain humility and a certain willingness. I'm just getting really choked up by this. Actually, I'm totally making this whole thing up. I just wanted to see if you would do it. Because if you say so, pastor, I will bring you the water. It's just all part of a test. No. Thank you, Rabbi Brewer. It's one of the liabilities of preaching something the third time. You never know when that's going to hit. Is that they had to check their egos at the door. Because you say so, there was a willingness there on that of the disciples that wasn't true for the religious leaders of the day. How do you create a community? You got to get that ego stuff out of here. How do you create a community? Second thing is you got to have a deep commitment. This is what um, the Sea of Galilee looks like um, in this picture here. It's a gorgeous freshwater lake. It's absolutely beautiful. Uh, For most of the year, it's surrounded by these beautiful hills that flow right into the water. It's, uh, It's something that I learned this last year that absolutely surprised me on the Sea of Galilee was that the fishing season during the lifetime of Jesus was only two months long. You know how we have like hunting seasons and fishing seasons now that are like enforced by law? Well, they had hunting and fishing season, but it wasn't enforced by law. It's just when you could naturally do it. It's when you could catch the fish. And so the, the, the fishing season was only two months long. And so here's what's interesting is nobody was a professional fisherman all year. It was just something that you seasonally did. This was go time. This was like holiday season for retail. And so when Jesus shows up to call the disciples, it's not that they're doing some boring, uninteresting, ineffective, just unimportant thing. It's, I mean, this is the moment that they are bringing in all the cash cow for what they do for the year. And so it would be like Jesus coming up to you and saying, hey, I know that you're about to receive your annual bonus, but I got a job for you. I need you to leave that job. And so the disciples, even though their boats are full of fish, even though it's that season of year, they're walking away from all of that to follow him. There's a high cost to discipleship. In the first point, we discover that Jesus has a low barrier to entry of the qualifications of anybody that's willing to come in. It just requires that humble spirit. But I don't want you to misunderstand the low barrier to entry to say that there's no deep into the pool. It's like one of those pools where you can just kind of walk into without stepping over a ledge. Anybody can get into it, but it also takes us into the depths. And so many people, uh, you know, put up barriers to letting people in and then other people also lower the barrier to entry and then but are unwilling to take them into the depths. Jesus does both of those things. One of the things that drives me absolutely crazy in today's day and age is our chronic and our incessant, constant lowering of expectations of human behavior. And we've gotten to the point where we've just kind of thrown up our hands and said, you know, we just can't do it anymore. And I don't think that's the solution to the problem. I think the solution is taking people into a deeper commitment with God. 
A guy that I used to follow um, in research when uh, about 20 years ago was an expert in the Methodist tradition. His name's Lyle Schaller, and he used to say that you can tell the difference between a growing church and a non-growing church by whether or not they have high expectations for their church members. And one of the feedback loops I got after last week was some of you are like, you know, yes, pastor, I understand that you want us to all be in community. You understand I don't have time for that. I will not back off of what I'm asking you because I think it's important. And yes, it might even require you leaving something behind in order to do it. But it is critical to get to the deeper waters of what God is asking us to do. And so I won't back off of the the challenge. We want you to be in community. And I know we live in a consumeristic age where the goal for a lot of churches is just to lower that, you know, expectation to where just all you need to do is showing up. I don't think that's the gospel. So yes, no egos in community, but also there's a really deep commitment, a high commitment for the gospel. The third way that we need to create community is with a constant connection, a constant connection. I want to show you a radical revolutionary device up on the screen here. This is called a sociometer. Say that with me. A sociometer is the first device that enables us to get quantitative empirical data from group dynamics. Almost everything that measured group dynamics before was qualitative in nature. It was subjective. You were having to observe things. This gives us real-time measurable data on a variety of things. It enables us to, to, to monitor the, the speech and the tone, not only the content of what somebody's saying, but the manner in which it's being said, uh, the proximity of the people who are in community. It's got an infrared sensor that lets you know whether or not you're keeping eye contact with other people. There's an accelerometer in it that tracks the level of activity or the movement. Uh, five different times in a second, this thing sends information to the computer. And we can start to track groups and the way that they interact. And here's what they've discovered. That the content of what you say is almost irrelevant to the performance of the community. That what matters is the proximity and the way that we treat one another. So let me ask you a question. If I put a sociometer on your marriage, what would it tell me? If I put a sociometer on your family and your interaction around the dinner table, what would it tell me? If I put a sociometer on your work relationships, what would it tell me? How about this? If I put a sociometer, if I could do this on your relationship with God, what would it tell me? This is a device that lets us know that the true secret to community is not one grand statement, but thousand of little cues that we tell one another that you're safe here, that you belong here, that you're needed here, that you're important here. Let me tell you what I mean by that. Some of you may have heard me tell the quick story of when I was in college, I was sitting in the dining hall, I'm sitting across from my uh, kind of college pastor, and the college pastor uh, asks me to pray for the meal, and I was kind of in a kind of 
you know, kind of a snarky period of my life. And I say, yeah, I'll be glad to bless the meal, but I'm not just going to bless this meal. I'm going to bless every future meal that I ever have. And that way I never have to bless the meal again because it's already blessed. And he looked at me, I'm sure not thinking at all that one day I would be a pastor. (laughs) And he said, that's a great idea, Rich. And while you're at it, why don't you tell your future wife, look, I'm going to tell you that I love you on our wedding day and I'm going to mean it so that I never have to tell you that I love you the rest of your life. Ouch. Belonging is about the constant connection of those little cues. What the sociometer tells us. In today's story, Jesus says to Peter something that he is going to say over and over and over and over and over again. He's going to say, be not afraid. The Bible talks about the steadfast love of God. It's not a one-time event. It's not a one-time decision. It is over and over again, be not afraid, be not afraid, be not afraid. You have a place here. How do you create a genuine community? You got to get the egos out. You got to go to the deep end of the pool with commitment, be willing to leave things behind. You got to have that constant, maintain that constant connection. And finally, that there's a grander vision, that there's a bigger picture. I want to show you an image up on the screen of a woman by the name of Sarah. Sarah knows the sting of rejection when she was a child and she lived in Indiana, according to New York Times columnist David Brooks, she had her father call out the pastor for stealing money from the church. And instead of being commended for preserving the integrity of the church, her family became immediately ostracized in their community. She says that for eight years, she got dirty looks and snide comments and was pushed to the side. During that same period of time, there was uh, another fellow classmate, a freshman in high school by the name of Ryan, who flunked out of school, who failed that grade. And a group of six teachers got together and said, you know what, not this kid, not on our watch, he is not gonna fall through the cracks. And so they rallied around this kid named Ryan, and they provided for him the safety net of a family of driving him places, making sure he had the supplies that he need, making sure he understood his assignments, providing that safety net so that he could perform at school in the way that they knew that he could. And he started to elevate his game, and by the time he got to the end of school and high school, he got to the Naval Academy and graduated from the Naval Academy, and he and his girlfriend, Sarah from high school sweethearts, got married and launched into their life together. This was a power couple. The world was at their fingertips. Sarah is at Johns Hopkins. She's doing a PhD in kind of biomedical science stuff. And there's a part of her life, even though she has everything available to her, there's a part of her life that's just empty. And so she finds her way to an underperforming school And she goes to the principal and she says, will you share with me the names of your most at-risk students, your most under-resourced students? The principal said, have at it. Anything you can do to help. 
And she goes back to Johns Hopkins and she gets dozens and dozens of her friends and they start just surrounding this group with family, saying the same thing that those teachers said to Ryan, not on our watch, you're not gonna fall through the cracks, we're gonna be there for you. They started a ministry, a, a, a work called Thread. Today there's 415 students that have not fallen through the cracks. They have over a thousand volunteers and they flood to these students to provide them with unconditional love. It starts with pizza, a little agreement of a contract and nobody has ever dropped out. At first, the students are resistant because they're used to people letting them down and they reject the very people who are trying to help them. And then Sarah says this, unconditional love is so rare in life that it is identity changing when someone keeps showing up even when you reject them. This is the nature of the gospel, that God keeps showing up even when we reject him, and that there's a dimension of our community and our lives that are inadequate until we get the bigger picture and the grander vision that God is calling us out. The closest thing to this in our Peachtree context right here at the church is La Amistad and in Spanish, it means the friendship that we do this here at the church. We surround these kids, these families to provide that kind of safety net and structure for them so that they can be deployed in life and be successful. If you think that in joining a community, a community is all about meeting your own needs, that community is not going to take you very far. It's only when you join a community where we heed the call of what Jesus says when he says, from now on, you will fish for people. Do you live your life in such a way where you see the bigger picture? That's what he's calling you to do. We believe that in the cross, Jesus was rejected so that you can be accepted. And that through the Spirit of God, Jesus is still here in this room, and he's walking up to each and every one of you, and in the midst of your rejection, he is saying, I choose you. And he is creating communities that will further the love, that unconditional, unsteadfast love of Almighty God. And so let's pray together. God, will you heal the woundedness of our rejection? Will you help us to cherish one another? Help anybody here who still feels that sting of not being chosen and to hear you whisper into their souls, I choose you, I'll work with you. Thank you for the fact that all that you ask of us is a humble willingness 
and that we don't bring our resumes and our experience, but we just bring ourselves. Remove our entitlement, our status management, and our unwillingness to leave things behind in order to go to the deep waters. Forgive us for lowering the expectations of the gospel instead of meeting the cost of discipleship. Heavenly Father, be close to anybody right now who doesn't feel that constant connection with you. Whisper into their ears, they don't have to be afraid, that they belong to you. And Lord, for us as a church, will you give us a bigger picture, a grander vision, a friendship, not just for our own sakes, for the sake of the world. And so thank you for enduring rejection so that we might further the acceptance of your kingdom. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.